Hi guys, thanks for coming out. I'm going to enjoy being in Vermont and all this beautiful stuff and people. Can you hear me? Okay. So um, I was thinking, you know, I've been digging up goop uh, in my poetry for many, many years, formless goop, and um, it's, and shaping it. And I, I remember teaching in the uh, Poets in the School program in New Jersey in 1985, and um, one of the towns uh, I was in uh, was teaching fourth grade, and the um, kids started writing uh, poems that were very sensitive subjects. And um, so at one point, I felt the need to have a talk to, with them about um, what was public and how public and private might, you know, exist and what it might mean. And they, kids are so smart, you know, they know all this stuff. So um, anyway, the city had come in to take pictures of me teaching. And of course, I was on fire and, you know, oh, I'm so energetic and everything. So the pictures came back and I had written the subject on the board behind me and it said, um, private and pubic. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, the parents, the parents were like, uh, what is she teaching? <laughs> you know? Privates or pubic? <laughs> Your choice. Uh, <laughs> so things like that do happen. Uh, okay, so I'm going to read um, the long poem, not the whole long poem, but some sections from uh, the long poem in The Undertaker's Daughter, uh, which I guess we could just say it. You don't like to say it, but it's about childhood abuse. <laughs> Let's just get that over. <laughs> um, so I wrote the first draft 20 years ago. I had always wanted to write about the violence in my childhood in a more extended way. I had journaled about it for years, but I needed to find a form that could hold emotional complexity and at the same time give me a sense of freedom as I recalled memories and emotions as tangled as fine gold chains. I came upon a prose piece piece in which the writer had used the furniture in her childhood as a way of organizing memories. Reimagining the beds I had slept in helped me to locate the writings in specific places and times and opened up a range of memories and feelings. I wrote many of the sections in one day. It was far from a work of art as I worked through unburied trauma as well as the trauma of writing about it. I had to reflect and re-see. Uh, often I'd find myself fearfully out there. I have been afraid of high bridges all my life in a place where I lack emotional and or artistic resources. But inspiration always arrives like angels and lifts me up so that my feet never dash a stone. When I dotted the last I, I truly felt the click of a box. My obsession lifted. I had worked myself around to a different way of seeing my past, a different relationship with my father, rather than being his victim. Writing beds changed my writing as well as my life. So I'm going to read some sections of that. <clears throat> beds. 
Trauma is, and this is a quote from Peter Levine, trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside us in the absence of an empathetic witness. Trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside us in the absence of an empathetic witness. One. The first was a bassinet. I don't remember what it was made of. I think it was one of those big white wicker baskets with wheels. When I couldn't sleep at night, my father would drag it into the kitchen. It was winter. He'd light the gas oven. I remember the room's stuffiness, the acrid bite of cold and fumes. My father didn't like crying. He said I was doing it to get attention. He didn't like my mother teaching me that I could cry and get attention. Nothing was wrong with me, and even if I was hungry, it wasn't time to eat. Sometimes I screamed for hours, and my father, I do remember this, would push his chair up to the lip of the bassinet and smoke as if he were keeping me company. After a few nights, he had broken me. I stopped crying, but when he put the bottle to my lips, I didn't want it. I was too exhausted to drink. My aunt brought home a present for me every day when she came from work. I'd wait by the kitchen door as soon as I could walk. Sometimes she'd fish down in her pocketbook, and the only thing she could find was Tums, which she called candy. But mostly she'd bring colored paper and pencils from the printing press where she worked. When I was two or three, I began to draw things and write my name. I wrote it backward for a long time, I-O-T. I drew houses, cars, money, and animals. I actually believed everything I drew was real. The house was a real house, as real as the one we lived in. I held it in my hand. It belonged to me like a chair or an af apple. From then on, I did not understand my mother's sadness or my father's rage. If we could have whatever we wanted just by drawing it, there was nothing to miss or to long for. I tried to show them what I meant, but they shrugged it off, not seeing or believing. The sideways escape, the battle between my father's worst thought of me and this proof, the stream of something questioned and found lacking, which must remain nearly invisible, pressed into what leaks out involuntarily as urine. A message which must be passed over the coals, raked, purified into a thin strand of unambiguous essence of the deep core. Ten. My father knew all about the body. He had learned in embalming school. For a while after his mother died, he stopped smoking and drinking and came home at night. He'd get out the huge leather-bound dictionary, Webster's, the same as our last name, that my grandmother had given him when he graduated. He would open it to a picture of the bones in the middle of the book, which had three see-through overlays. On the first, the blue muscles. On the second, the red blood vessels. And finally, on the third, the white nerves. He loved the body, loved knowing how those things worked. He taught me the longest name of a muscle, the sternocleidomastoid clidomastoid, a cradle or hammock that was strung between the sternum and the mastoid. He'd amaze me with long multisyllabic words, then he'd test me on the spelling. My father always explained he 
always showed me the little spear on the plate that I that I had set to drain before he'd make me do all the dishes over again. He'd explain how he had studied hard so he knew where to hit me and not leave a single mark. He'd brag about it. He wanted me to appreciate the quality of his work like any good teacher. He wanted to pass it down. Thirteen. I was nine when we moved to a bigger apartment on the first floor. Now my father had only one flight to carry me up by my hair. He didn't mind going public. The stairs were right in the lobby. But he refused to allow me to scream in terror when he grabbed me. Not because he was afraid people would see. My screaming made him furious because he knew, I knew, he was only going to carry me up the stairs and scream at me, only beat me on the thighs and calves where it would show and only until I made every look of pain, confusion, and fury disappear from my face. He knew I knew that. So what was up with all that broadcasting? As if something really bad was going to happen. As if he was going to kill me. Fourteen. Life is something you just have to get used to. What is normal in a house? The bottom line. What is taken for granted? I always had good food. Our house was clean. My mother was tired and sad most of the time. My mother spent most of her day cleaning. We had a kitchen with a little dining space, a living room, a bedroom, a bathroom, and two halls. One that led to the bathroom and the bedroom, and one that led to the front door. There was a linen closet in the hall between the bedroom and the bathroom. My books and toys all went into a drawer that I had to straighten every Saturday. There was a closet in the bedroom for my mother's clothes, a closet in the front hall for my father's, and a closet off the living room that held my mother's bed. It was a huge metal apparatus that somehow swept out on a hinge. I can't imagine how my mother and I, as small as we were, brought it out and put it back every night and every morning. For my father was hardly ever there. Could we just stand up or something for a minute? Okay, a little bit won't be much longer. Do it. So you think I should do it? All right. Okay, I'm going to do it now. All right. That's the first time I've ever taken that pause. We've been talking about that, haven't we? About self-care. you got to take care of yourself. And look, everybody stood up. It's okay. All right. 
I can't imagine how my mother and I, as small as we were, brought it out and put it back every night and every morning, for my father was hardly ever there. We just grabbed on, exerted a little force, and pulled it straight toward us. It seemed to glide by itself, swinging outward around the corner. Then it would stand up, rocking, balancing, until we pulled it down. I think I'll just read one more of these. 16. My mother shopped after work every Thursday, so my father would come home and fix dinner for me. He'd stop at Fadel's Market and get a big steak with a bone in it. He'd bring it home and unwrap the brown paper slowly, savoring one corner at a time, like someone doing a strip tease or opening a trove of stolen diamonds. He'd brag about how much money he had spent. He'd broil it right up next to the flame, spattering grease, fire, and smoke. Only a couple of minutes on each side, cooked still bloody, nearly raw, the way we liked it, he said, different from your mother. He'd say he liked it just knocked over the head with a hammer and dragged over a hot skillet. His eyebrows would go wild and he'd rub his hands together like a fly. Afterward, I hear in myself a slight opposition, a wounded presence seeing, I am me, I know who I am, but I am left with only a narrow hole, a thin tube that the words must squeak Where words might have gushed out as if from a struck well now. I watch it. Watch every word. It wasn't my father's thought that I took in. It was his language. It is the language in me that must change. You know, um, <clears throat> Um, I sang a part of it. Uh, when my book was published, I was going um, the next day to do a reading of it, and I suddenly realized I couldn't read those poems. <laughs> and a voice in my head said, so sing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the difference between the ringing, reading and singing is now I'm performing it. So I'm not the girl in the story. I'm the person performing the girl in the story. Isn't that great? So this is what I'm saying. Aid will come. You take your risk and aid will come. You just have to go out there. And you've got to look for your support, you know. You just keep looking around. But um, afterwards, I started thinking about Sprichstimme, which is that thing that they do um, in opera? It's called Sprechgesang, where the uh, vocalist, the words are very important. So they hang on to the pitch, but they're saying the words. In Sprechstimme, it's the words that are more important. So you, you're doing a lyric, but you're, it, it's, it's the word. And then I thought of Billie Holiday. 
You know how Billie Holiday, uh, this is a quote, Holiday and Lester Young each chose to avoid playing the melody of songs written and instead sought to create new melodies close enough to the original paraphrase and evoke them, but not be bound by them. Isn't that great? Okay, so what do you do after you're done writing about childhood trauma? So, um, so yeah, so you, you have to take another risk because there's nothing out there, right? So the risk is, you know, seeing maybe you'll never write again. Somebody at dinner, I'm not going to name any names, just said... <laughs> when I said, "Oh, do you, do you, this is a painter? Do you do you? What do you work on?" She says, "I want to write less and less." <laughs> so I know what that feels like. So then this poem came out. So what did all? What was that personal writing about? All those years that I had to do that work, speculations about I. A certain doubleness by which I stand as remote from myself as from another. Henry David Thoreau, one. I didn't choose the word. It came pouring out of my throat like water inside a drowned man. I didn't even push on my stomach. I just lay there dead, like he told me. And I came out. I'm sorry, Father. I wasn't my fault. Two. How did I feel? Felt almost alive when I'd get in, like the Trojan horse. I'd sit on the bench. I didn't look out of the eye holes so I wouldn't see the carnage. Three, is I speaking another language? I said I is dangerous. But at the time, I couldn't tell which one of us was speaking. Four, why I? I was the closest I could get to the one I loved, who I believe was smothered in her playpen. Perhaps she gave birth to I before she died. Six, I found I in the bulrushes, raised by a dirtiness beyond imagination. I loved I like a stinky bed, while I hid in a sentence with a bunch of other words. Nine, I am not the I in my poems. I is the net I try to pull me in with. Eleven, I made I do what I wasn't supposed to do, what I didn't want to do. Defend me. Stand as an example. Stand in for what I was hiding. I treated I as if I wasn't human. Twelve, they say what I write belongs to me, that it is my true experience. 
They think it validates my endurance. But why pretend I is a kind of terminal survival? I didn't promise I anything. And in that way, I is the one I was most true to. Okay, so, um, thanks. So for a long time, I didn't write anything, you know, after that book. I knew I was really done with it, <laughs> which was a great feeling. But, you know, then what? So maybe I'd never write again. You know, maybe that was my work. Sometimes we only have one book that we write over and over, right? So then I started writing little poems. Actually, what had happened is um, a, a chancellor, and the chancellors decided they wanted to do, to celebrate the 80th anniversary of the Academy of American Poets, that we'd all be part of a ringa. And I had never written a ringa in my life, so I thought, like, shit out of luck. I don't know what I'm how I'm going to be of use. So I said, that's okay. You know, I'm good imitator. Uh, they'll start writing it, and then I'll get the, you know, the one before me, and I'll just write. Unfortunately, my name starts with D. <laughs> so anyway, I started writing little poems. So what I think I've been doing now, I realize, is relieving I of its hard work. And uh, it feels great. And also in my work, I'm moving toward a kind of spiritual relationship because I really feel that work is spiritual work. It's about, it's about salvation, right? And belief in, um, a be belief in the human spirit and something about trust. Because you're out there, right? So if you're trusting, and you put yourself out there, what are you trusting? You know? that You're trusting that you're going to be okay. I mean, deep down, right? So, all right. So here's some of the poems that came. And then we'll have time for your questions. Um, Odysseus Elitus was a uh, Greek poet who lived in the past century. This is a poem after Elites. Come now, my left hand, come from the mountain where you have been peacefully grazing. Bear first the bones to the radioactive light. In the spaces between the fingers, 
let me nail you to paper. After Elites, come now, my left hand, come from the mountain where you have been peacefully grazing, bear first the bones to the radioactive light. In the spaces between the fingers, let me nail you to paper. The poem. It, it's like you have a very limited space to move around in. Like an escape artist in a box smaller than her own body. And you have to rearrange the parts to make them fit. You work at it as if you have to put everything you own in a single hat box. As if your body is a Rubik's Cube and you have to turn and turn the little cubies until you get the right numbers. Then the top goes boom and out pop 50 exotic dancers in ostrich plumes. The poem. It's like you have a very limited amount of space to move around in, like an escape artist in a box smaller than her own body. And you have to rearrange the parts to make them fit. You work at it as if you have to put everything you own in a single hat box, as if your body is a Rubik's Cube, and you have to turn and turn the little cubies until you get the right numbers. Then the top goes boom. I like that part. And out pop 50 exotic dancers in ostrich plumes. We're winding down. The strangest necessary ingredient in my mother's spaghetti sauce. Two cans of those soggy looking mushrooms that for some reason after hours of simmering stay whole like belly buttons and give you a woody essence that fresh mushrooms do not. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> oh, that's great. Jeez. I never read these before. Um, <laughs> lessons from the best cook of my childhood. The wife of the man who molested me waved her hand over the singed meringue she pulled from her oven and forgave herself, saying, who'll know the difference a hundred years from today? Lessons from the best cook of my childhood. The wife of the man who molested me waved her hand over the singed meringue she pulled from her oven and forgave herself. Who'll know the difference a hundred years from today? Okay. Just a couple of these I can't resist. Dialogue. I'm not a purist, the president claims as he chews a Nicorette. Did you know he smokes? I'm not a purist, the president claims as he chews a Nicorette. A soldier is stationed in a small room to guard his suit, which hangs on a bathroom door on Air Force One. Dialogue. I'm not a purist, the president claims as he chews a Nicorette. 
A soldier is stationed in a small room to guard his suit, which, suit, which hangs on a bathroom door on Air Force One. Advance. They process away Lucille, Ruth, Maxine, the light through glass, through water, the news with the wall on top of it, thin wallpaper to the left of the chair. Advance. They process away Lucille, Ruth, Maxine, the light through glass, through water, the news with the wall on top of it, thin wallpaper to the left of the chair. Okay, and um, I just got a title for this, either maybe a title for the book or maybe for this section of the book, and it's uh, going to be Small Gestures of Nourishment and Self-Protection. And this is the last thing I'll read. It's a piece of prose. And I think, I'm not, I don't think the prose will be part of the poetry book, but maybe it will. But anyway, it's quote, it quotes Albert Einstein, I live in that solitude that is painful in youth, but delicious in the years of maturity. It wasn't until I was an old woman that I began to enjoy being beautiful. It wasn't until I was an old woman that I began to enjoy being beautiful. I had come to the art of self-possession. For many years, I would look into my closet when I wanted to feel pretty and put on the woman I wanted to model. I would go through the clothes mentally and I'd ask, what would Carolina Herrera wear? For so long, I had tried to fit myself as one cuts the cloth to the pattern. Perhaps my first experience of comparison was when I watched my mother in the mirror as she put on makeup, and I understood that no matter what I did, I would never be as beautiful. I remember following her in Hudson's when we'd go shopping. People's faces and eyes would turn to her and stay on her far too long as they passed by, as if her face were a hook. I had given up the hope that my face would capture them, so I enjoyed her beauty in a priestly fashion. For many years, I have read other poets, studied their style. I have engrossed myself in learning, and it has been arduous. But I have written a few good things that I am proud of, and I have done something unique with what I learned. I expressed a buried horror and made it shine. I spent 50 years polishing it. Now it is done, and I find myself reading not to learn, but for pleasure. Reading Ernest Hemingway, I am walking on the banks of the scene. I can taste the Pouillet-Fousse, I don't know how to say it, and the Salt River oysters, cold on their beds of ice. I am a ghost of spring air, but I eat everything, textures, colors. I am famished for sweets. 
During the night, I think of my wardrobe. I have arranged the clothes by color and use, and use. The dresses begin with white, go through cream and beige, then colors and prints to brown, and lastly black. I do that with everything in my closet, skirts, pants, shirts, sweaters, jackets, suits. I go over them in my mind. I want to build an outfit that begins with a smoky blue-gray mesh top. See how I've really worked at this. You, you, you can see I've been really studying this. So the thing of it is, I, I go over it, but I always put on the same thing every day. Okay. <laughs> All right. But, but you can write about it, you know what I'm saying? Okay. You would think I would really be up here in like a Carolina Herrera dress or something. Okay, I want to build an outfit that begins with a smoky blue-gray mesh top with a round neck and three-quarter sleeves. I think of the black strapless dress I will put under it. How thin I will look, svelte. The dress is strange and even him that rises in front to just below the knees and makes the legs seem longer and more naked. I get up to try these things on to see if my mind has seen it correctly. I try various pearl necklaces, three in increasing lengths like the 20s, hanging almost to my waist, and a pair of black fabric shoes with a cutout for one blunt red toe. I only do this for myself during the middle of the night in my waking hours of insomnia. It is like the act of reading, private. I move through the fabrics and feel them against my skin, braless, without underclothes. I will wear this outfit tomorrow evening when I go out. I will carry this bold square silver purse which shines out against the blue, gray, and black, my tanned throat and chest, appearing more naked than if they were naked through the smoky mesh top. People don't stare at me when I go out. And I don't like it if they do. I, I don't like being too visible. I like to fade away as I did behind my mother and watch others when I am in a crowd. When I pe feel people's eyes on me, I blink and turn sideways or do something else to make me feel that I've distracted them and made myself smaller. Then when I look again, they've looked away. Sometimes at the theater, when I feel I'm so beautiful that I'm vivid, hot, I pass through the crowd and no one seems to notice me any more than anyone else. And I wonder if I think too highly of myself. But when you are old, you are willing to make mistakes for beauty, willing to wear a silver purse that might make someone wonder, why would she wear something so obvious and loud when the rest of her clothes are subtle? You will wear something only because it makes you smile inside you for its square of light against the darkness. It's your own choice. For the first time, you are out of character. I've had students who dress in wild patterns, nylons with holes in them, outlandish jewelry. Perhaps they too are dressing themselves from the inside. One who has begun to see the stars approaching, like another Paris Boulevard, the city that opens to the oldest city. I will dress during the night and walk in front of two mirrors. I will admire the best things about me, my broad shoulders and the high bones of my chest. And in such a way, I will write. Thank you.